So tonight we are to Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8. This is the second to last chapter in the book, so we will close it out next week. If you want to follow along on paper, paper, Amos chapter 8 is on 1429. Most of your pew Bibles, otherwise the words will be on the screen. Amos chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, Amos prophesying here, and he says, this is what the sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath ended that we may market wheat, skimping the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with the silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst, They who swear by the shame of Samaria or say, as surely as your God lives, O Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall never to rise again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, one of the things that we have learned, and it's kind of emphasized once again here in Amos chapter 8, is that, you know, the rich and wonderful life that God desires for his people is not only to be experienced individually, but also communally or within the context of community. The whole world should be able to see what God is like by looking at the community that bears his name, the community of believers, Christians, or the church. But in the time of Amos, the nations surrounding Israel were certainly not getting the right picture about God. As a matter of fact, they were not even getting close to the right picture. In Israel, Amos tells us that there was corruption, indulgence, 
immorality and oppression of the poor and the needy. And these things, the fact that these things existed, the fact that these things were tolerated in the society of Israel communicated exactly the wrong message about God. And God, the lion, was roaring with anger. See, God was not interested in their religious routines that lacked substance and true faith. And so it was time for a reminder of just how powerless God's people truly were apart from his gracious and providential care. As a matter of fact, in one generation from this time, the northern tribes of Israel would be conquered and their injustice and their unrighteousness would be swept away along with the injustice and unrighteousness of the nations that surrounded them. Now last week, this has not happened yet. This would happen in a generation to come. But last week we uh, discussed and encountered this interesting image of a plumb line held up against a bowed and sagging wall. This, of course, represented Israel. God gave this image to Amos in order to to highlight the discrepancy between God's standard of righteousness and the building that should have conformed to it. Again, the building being the nation of Israel. And here in chapter 8, we have another reminder that that Israel is not how it should be, is not how it ought to be. Because our text this evening begins with yet another interesting image, a basket of ripe fruits. Now, that's a little bit different than a plumb bob hanging beside a crumbling and untrue wall. As a matter of fact, it's on the surface anyway, a very positive image. Who wouldn't like an image of a basket of ripe fruit? Artists throughout centuries have all delved into that still life of ripe fruit in a basket. Yes, it's a positive image brings to mind thoughts of harvest, thoughts of uh, abundance and flourishing, uh, refreshing, kind of everything as it should be. But the thing is that almost immediately God interprets this image of ripe fruit for Amos, and it really has nothing to do with health or well-being, at least as it is applied to Israel. On the contrary, the ripeness of the fruit God uses as analogy to the ripeness of Israel for judgment. God saw that Israel had become a society of of blatant and rampant self-interest. Personal gain had become an idol for the people, and there was nothing that was more important than that. Injustice, greed, selfishness, a complete failure to care for and to love neighbors. So God tells Amos that the time is ripe. He says, I will spare them no longer. Judgment would come upon Israel because God's people had put selfish desires and pursuits before the compassion that they wanted that God wanted them to exemplify. Verse 4, 
Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land. The accusation in that verse is twofold. First, the trampling of the needy. It is an accusation of exploitation and oppression, even if you wanted to put it in more harsh terms, the practice of slavery. Or, I guess, said in another way, a little bit uh, less edgy way, the active using of others for the purpose of personal gain. Second, this verse also contains the implication that there were some in Israel that had so little that they weren't even worth the energy it would take to exploit them. And those who were not worth exploiting were ignored completely in that society to the point where there was no place for them even in the land. Now stepping back for a moment, would you all agree that people in general have certain fundamental needs? I agree with that statement which is why I'm in favor of a free market. A free market is based on supply and demand, based on meeting material needs. But that said, the marketplace of material goods is not the only thing in play here. It's not as easy as just getting the things that we need and want and everything will be good. No, we have have other needs as human beings that are actually much more important And those needs are disregarded when business and wealth accumulation become the primary focus in a society. People need the opportunity to love and be loved. People need a sense of belonging in a functional community. People need an environment to use their gifts and and have their gifts appreciated by the wider community. And God desired, God desired that Israel would maintain a society where this could happen for everyone. But people are messy. And therefore, society gets messy as well. And so creating and sustaining a community like this is actually very, very hard work. Yes, it is described and commanded in the word of God. And it also takes a great measure of dependence on God. And it requires the the character of God to be concretely applied by his people. In other words, it requires mercy, love, and compassion. God calls his people to treat one another with the dignity befitting an image bearer of God. But what did Amos see? God showed him failure after failure. And not failure in the attempt to kind of realize the society that God had called Israel to be, but a failure to even care to try. Amos saw that self-interest had become the unrivaled driving force in people's lives, and nowhere was that more evident than in the nation's economy. Verse 6, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. Now, you have to understand that wheat was sold by weight, right? 
And so if you could sweep up all the dust and all the husk that you possibly could and mix it in, you're going to get more value for the wheat that you're selling because the weight is going to be greater. But are you selling wheat? No, you're selling scraps and sweepings. Israel's economy, its business atmosphere was one where people were there to be used and abused and cheated and discarded just like any other commodity. People saw each other not as image bearers of God, but as uh, means to an end. Not individuals, but as consumers and as resources. Yeah, selfish desires and pursuits in 800 BC Israel were prioritized far above compassion, which damaged interpersonal relationships up and down the line, and it also shaped the way that Israel viewed and practiced religion, which damaged people's relationship with God. Verse 5a, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? You get what it's saying there, right? Here is a society where the day of worship was observed, but it was observed grudgingly. The day of worship was perceived as an inconvenience and a hindrance. So these same people that were guilty of oppression and, and exploitation were, were churchgoers. But it's revealed very quickly that that's not what gripped their lives. It wasn't their relationship that, with God that shaped their desires. It was instead a love of wealth, possessions, prosperity. Certainly not the love of God. Brothers and sisters, I've mentioned this before. It applies to many other sermon series other than just this one in Amos or even the prophets. We must always be aware of the trap of being in love with God's blessings rather than loving God himself and valuing our relationship with him above all else. It's not just about the blessings. It's about the relationship with God and who he is and being in love with who he is, and understanding and being in awe and reverence of his great purposes. Because not loving God for who he is leads to something that is terribly dysfunctional and destructive. It leads to minds constantly preoccupied and focused on things like maximizing profits reducing labor costs, boosting production, hoarding worldly wealth and ignoring heavenly treasures. It leads to profits becoming more important than character and selfish desires and pursuits becoming even an excuse for dishonesty. Yes, the people of Israel had forsaken healthy relationships with each other. The people of Israel had forsaken a healthy relationship with their God. And God makes this promise to them in verse 7. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. 
And that's not, he will never forget the good things that they've done. That's, I will never forget any of the evil things that they have done. And so judgment would come. And here's how judgment is described. We'll go through this kind of quickly. Verse 3 talks about screaming and carnage. That doesn't sound like very fun things. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn into wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. There's the carnage. Silence. Verses 8 and 9 talk about natural disasters. Will not the land tremble for this? And all who live in it mourn. The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Verse 10 talks about regret and shame, weeping and bitterness. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Verse 11a speaks of scarcity and famine. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Yeah, in in one sense, scarcity and famine would replace material abundance and flourishing. In other words, that idol that Israel had developed, that idol of wealth and prosperity would be laid to waste. But wait, what would be the nature of this famine? Specifically, it was the removal of the word of God from their lives. Remember how our text began this evening? An image of a basket of ripe fruit, thoughts of harvest, abundance, flourishing, everything as it should be. The image that closes out chapter 8 is the image of famine. Not a famine of crops or fruits or vegetables or the produce of the land, but a famine of the word of God. Verse 11, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. See, when the word of the Lord is absent or lost or rejected or ignored, Nothing can flourish. And so this is an image of darkness and weakness and hopelessness and despair. And this, I think, is probably, to me anyway, the most devastating and terrifying threat of judgment in this entire book. Can you imagine what it would be like if the word of the Lord could no longer be found? Can you imagine how fast the fabric of our society would disintegrate? Can you imagine how quickly relationships would be shattered and fall to pieces? The entire world would be laid to waste. Nothing dependable enough to provide guidance. Nothing transcendent enough to provide uh, enlightenment. Nothing powerful enough to restrain sin and evil. Here's the picture God presented to Amos in the closing verses. 
In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. They who swear by the shame of Samaria or say, as surely as your God lives, O Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall never to rise again. I mean, look, we've been talking about it at least the past few weeks, but kind of all the way through, Israel was functionally already there. They had neglected and rejected the word of the Lord, the scriptures, the prophets. Up to this point, God had tried over and over again to communicate with his people through numerous signs and messengers and writings, pleading for them, pleading for them to return to him. His word had been right there in front of them. It was near to them. It was readily accessible. Uh, But what if the Lord took it away? What if there came a point that it was simply too late? And brothers and sisters, especially, especially those who have the best of intentions, you know... Next week, next month, next year, at some point, I'm really, really going to dig into the word. I'm really going to take it seriously. I'm really going to, I'm really going to allow it to start shaping my life. And man, that I am going to be obedient to that thing. And I am going to taste and see that the Lord is good. I just have some other stuff to do today. Some other stuff to do this week. Just got to finish out this year. But then, you know, next year, that's when I'm going to get serious. Brothers and sisters, Amos, in a lot of ways, doesn't apply directly to our lives. It's not something you read and, man, it just hits home right on the surface. Writes, writes, clearly, same experiences. You got to do a little work here. But one thing you do get from Amos, one thing you do get from Amos is the message that the door will not be hold open forever. And the message of Amos is this, brothers and sisters, do not play around with this, thinking that you have all the time in the world, thinking that you know where to find the word of the Lord when you want it, having the the best intentions of someday taking it seriously. The word of the Lord is right here for us, right now, calling out to be the priority. What it reveals to us is of the utmost importance because what it reveals to us has eternal implications. And what does it tell us? It tells us that unlike the smug and complacent people to whom Amos prophesied and preached, our God is unfailingly gracious. Though Israel would have to experience judgment, God would still find a way to show them mercy. Next week, we're going to encounter in chapter 9 a promise of restoration where God shows Amos a distant day when the people of God will be gathered again under a king from the lineage of David. But this new people would include all of the nations, and their relationship with God would would never again be broken or even be compromised. 
This time of restoration will culminate in a new and renewed creation, a creation that will be so fruitful that the harvesters can't even keep up with the harvest. Brothers and sisters, it is through Jesus Christ that all things will be restored in this way. Jesus came to establish a new community of God's people. Unlike the people of Amos' time, this community is increasingly characterized by justice and righteousness. This community seeks to demonstrate all the attributes of God's character. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus described in detail what, what this kind of life that we are called to looks like. But actually, the beauty of it is that he went far beyond mere description. Jesus lived out the truths that he taught. He demonstrated what it means to live in a way that reflects God's character. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He forgave sins. He spoke out against hypocrisy and injustice. He guided people in an understanding of the truth. He took the role of a servant and ultimately gave his life to save his people. Matthew 9 says Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus communicates by his words and his actions and his emotions the character of God our heavenly Father. Emmanuel, God made flesh, reveals that God is compassionate, is merciful, is just. And I should mention that Jesus does this all on our behalf. And so consequently, one of the challenges of this message in Amos is uh, immediately mitigated a little bit. It is emphasized that we are to have faith and not depend on our works. Because of Jesus, we do not have to worry that we fail to measure up because the representative of our community does. And so Amos, Amos teaches us that we fall so short and we fail so completely in meeting up to God's standard that we need someone else to do it for us, and Jesus does. Knowing that, knowing that means that we, with confidence, can trust in Jesus Christ and not in our own actions and our own behavior. And as we talked about this morning, Jesus sends his spirit to guide us in that kind of human existence, that human existence that God calls us to as well. We'll end there for this evening. Pick up chapter 9 next week. Let's bow our heads in prayer.